0: Did Money, Not Morality End British Enslavement? Episode 4 So far in this series, we've seen that British enslavement was not ended by the abolition campaign, whether by William Wilberforce or any of the other leaders like Thomas Clarkson or Margaret Middleton, who in reality played a much bigger part in it than Wilberforce did. The abolition campaign flourished in the 1780s and petered out in the 1790s. But the trade in enslaved people wasn't ended by the British until
1: 1807. So what did end British enslavement? Long ago, the Trinidadian scholar, Eric Williams, suggested that enslavement ended not for moral reasons, but in fact simply because it was no longer profitable. And for decades, scholars accepted Williams' verdict. But then, in 1977, a book appeared that seemed to turn Williams' conclusion on its head. In 1977, an American historian called Seymour Drescher brought out a book that turned historical studies of enslavement upside down. Drescher's a professor, now a professor emeritus, at the University of Pittsburgh. In his 1977 book, Drescher argued that when the trade in enslaved people was abolished in 1807, it had been at the height of its profitability. From 1783 to 1815, said Drescher, the sugar trade had boomed. The property value of the slave colonies had doubled. The trade in slaves was increasingly profitable and reaching a peak, and Britain's share of it was bigger than ever. Sugar prices, said Drescher, were rising. The West Indies' share of British imports and exports was also going up.
0: In fact, Drescher pointed out, the banning of the trade in enslaved people in 1807 came at a moment when Napoleon Bonaparte had closed virtually the whole of Europe to British trade. So commerce with the Caribbean islands was at that moment more vital to Britain than it had ever been. Far from giving up a business that had run its course, the British, according to Drescher, had voluntarily surrendered one of their most precious possessions – it had, after all, he argued, been the extraordinary popular moral campaign that had triumphed over the country's economic interest. It had, in the title of his book, been Econocide – the radical termination of a profitable trade by a newly empowered political movement.
1: Well, suddenly the old, it was Wilmerforce what done it, was back on the table many historians, particularly those who were not specialists in the subject, accepted Drescher's conclusions completely. On the 200th anniversary of the ending of the trade in enslaved people in 2007, as distinguished an historian as Simon Sharma declared, in the Sunday Times no less, that the slave trade had been, quote, a Klondike of money. Abolition had been, quote, an absolutely spectacular act of irrationality.
0: Now, we are not experts in this field any more than Sharma is, and we hesitate to take issue with a specialist of the stature of Seymour Drescher. But the fact is that his interpretation ignores a great deal of the wider context we've so far been sketching in our series. The loss of the American colonies in 1783, after seven costly years of war, had changed everything. The Caribbean was nowhere near as important to the British Empire in 1807 as it had been 30 years before. The West Indian sugar planters had suffered an enormous loss of political and
1: economic leverage. But, more important, there are, and have been for some years, very well-known problems with Dresher's calculations. He relied, for example, on the price that sugar fetched in London. But as David Beck Ryden, an historical statistician at Brunel University, has pointed out, this obscures a multitude of factors. For a start, after the outbreak of war with the American colonists in 1776, the cost of shipping had rocketed. Merchant ships now had to carry cannon for protection against enemy shipping, and the extra men to fire them. And their crew, understandably, demanded higher wages. And they were having to sail in convoy, and this added weeks to journey times. The British Royal Navy also commandeered many British merchant ships for its own use. But shipping rates also went up because the planters couldn't any longer use cheap American boats. They were now having to use ships built in Flanders and Portugal and even Italy. One agent wrote from Jamaica in 1778 that he reckoned a third of the sugar would end up being left stranded on the island. Even the barrels they used were costing more because now the islands had lost their easy access to North American timber they were also no longer able to buy their supplies of food and livestock from the old North American colonies. It all had to be expensively imported across the Atlantic. So, of course, the
0: sugar prices in London were going up, as Drescher had noticed. But does that mean that the planters themselves were making any more money? Well, by the 1800s, West Indies planters were complaining that since the loss of the North American colonies, costs had doubled in 20 years. And not only were their costs rocketing, this was also a period of general inflation, caused not least by the amount of money the government was borrowing and spending to defend the West Indies. The 1790s, when Britain was at war again, now with the French, were an especially bad decade for inflation. So even if the price of sugar in London was going up, all that that tells you is that the planters' costs, including inflation, were rising. In fact, once you take all this into account, it's clear that the real prices the planters were actually receiving for their sugar were getting less in the 1790s and 1800s than they had been before. Ryden studied detailed records from 75 estates in Jamaica in these years and found that the prices actually passed on to the planters on the islands for their sugar were in fact going down in real terms, which means taking inflation into account, from 1750 to 1807 which was the year when the slave trade was abolished.
1: Now, possibly, just possibly, some of this fall in prices might perhaps have been because the Jamaicans were somehow getting more efficient at producing sugar. Some planters do seem to have experimented with new ways of ploughing and irrigation and other reforms. Some tried an incentive scheme, giving their enslaved workers time off for reaching quotas. One planter even proposed renaming his slaves, quote, assistant planters. Sounds worrying. (laughs) It just goes to show that modern management theory is in reality just another form of, uh, of slavery. But none of this was widespread enough or thoroughgoing enough to make much difference. After all, English management has historically always been among the worst in the world.
0: Anyway, between 1795 and 1807, the bottom suddenly fell out of the price the planters were getting for their sugar. It fell by 40%. No amount of improvements can explain that. In 1807, planters were loudly protesting that they were facing ruin. Well, they often said that, but this time it actually looks as though it was true. In
1: 1977 an American historian Seymour Drescher claimed that sugar prices were going up in the period before the slave trade was banned. He suggested that the British had ended the trade for purely moral reasons when it was actually against their economic interests. But take a closer look and you find that although sugar prices in London were going up that largely reflected inflation and escalating costs, especially the costs of shipping. The price the planters were getting after inflation was in fact going down. Now, a small part of that did come from improved farming. But then, between 1795 and 1807, prices plummeted by 40%. No amount of better farming can account for that.
0: Now, whatever Drescher claims, this sudden drop in sugar prices is hardly a mystery. It goes back to the revolt of the enslaved on the French island of Saint-Domingue, part of which we now call Haiti, in 1791. The single, large island of Saint-Domingue had been producing more sugar than the whole of the British West Indies put together, and producing it between 15 and 40% cheaper. Well, it puts the British West Indies into a wholly new perspective. The British planters and their lavish lifestyle and their hopelessly inefficient farming had only ever been kept going because Britain's system of trade protection, the so-called navigation laws, prevented British consumers from buying much cheaper sugar from the French or anywhere else. On its own, the British method of enslaved grown sugar had never been commercially competitive.
1: Well, let's say that again. The British method of enslaved-grown sugar had never been commercially competitive. It had only ever been kept going by Britain's restrictive navigation laws, laws that forced British consumers, who used much more sugar than anyone else in Europe, to buy British sugar and pay a massive premium for it. But then a free black man named Toussaint led a revolt on Saint-Domingue, the French island. Born enslaved, Toussaint had somehow got an education, partly from Catholic Jesuits, and acquired his freedom in 1776, at the age of 33. He seems then to have worked as a hired hand on a plantation, but managed to build a small farming business of his own, including owning his own enslaved people. When a rebellion broke out in 1791, Toussaint first got involved because he had some medical knowledge. But in 1793, as the revolt continued, he emerged as a leader, calling himself and indeed dressing as an army general and adopting the surname Louverture, the one who opens the way.
0: Toussaint Louverture's long battle with the French and then with the British is in itself an extraordinary story. In the end, in 1802, the French succeeded in capturing him and deported him to France, where he died in prison. But by then, Saint-Domingue had won its freedom. On the 1st of January 1804, Saint-Domingue became an independent nation,
1: Haiti. Now, the importance for our story is that the revolt on Saint-Domingue halted sugar production on the island. Suddenly, without Saint-Domingue's vast input, the world sugar market opened up, and especially in Europe, where most of the island's sugar had been sold. British sugar had of course always been priced out of the European market, but with Santa Mag out of the question, everything suddenly seemed possible. Large quantities of British West Indian sugar now began to be shipped to the Netherlands, and when the French invaded the Netherlands, it was shipped to Hamburg, which then became the centre of the European sugar market. And with a worldwide shortage of sugar, prices at Hamburg went rapidly up
0: the British West Indian planters suddenly had the possibility of doubling their output, perhaps more. Now, Seymour Drescher's story about the planters increasing their output and demanding as many newly enslaved people as they could get makes sense. Especially in Jamaica, the planters grabbed every metre of land they could and they bought every enslaved man, woman or child who could possibly be shipped to their harbours. They were willing to borrow heavily and pay high prices for them output of sugar in Jamaica trebled. In the course of the 1790s war with the French, the British also captured Trinidad, Guyana and Suriname and began cultivating sugar there too. For a few years, producing sugar seemed to be the quickest way to get rich. Sugar seemed, wrote one observer at the time, to have become, quotes, an inexhaustible mine of riches, or in Simon Sharma's words, a Klondike of money.
1: But of course, others spotted the same European opportunity too. The Spanish and the French in their remaining colonies also began increasing their output. In fact, sugar production on Spanish held Cuba increased by 15 times between 1791 and 1806, and Cuba was much larger than Jamaica. These producers shipped their sugar in American vessels. They were not only much cheaper to build than the British, because timber was much more plentiful in the United States, but they also charged less than the British shippers because the Americans were not at war with anyone. Their ships didn't need to carry cannon or extra crew. so of we'll go in convoys. So, of course, with all this extra sugar, the European markets quickly became glutted. And the British West Indies planters found they were being priced out. They were producing more and more sugar for less and less return. But unlike their foreign competitors, the British West Indies planters were simply unable to produce sugar much more cheaply. To try to gain a competitive
0: edge, the planters in Jamaica ripped up their old sugar canes and planted new so-called bourbon canes, which produce more sugar per acre. As the historian David Beck Ryden points out, it was a disaster because the new sugar was lower quality. Worse, the new canes exhausted the soil and soon began to produce less and less sugar. And there was no point in digging them up and planting the old
1: ones back again. Because the soil was now useless. And then came the winter of 1799. The River Elbe froze over and Hamburg, which you remember was now the centre of the European sugar trade, was cut off. Suddenly its commodity market nosedived and a wide-scale banking and market collapse looked inevitable. Well the British government acted fast. It poured something like a million pounds in gold and silver coins into barrels, loaded them onto the frigate HMS Lutine, and sent them to bail the Hamburg Market out. Actually, the Lutine was a French ship that had been captured by the British in seventeen ninety three when they besieged the fort of Toulon, where it happens that the French artillery commander had been a young officer by the name Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon Bonaparte. But back to
0: the Lutine with its million pounds worth of treasure in barrels destined to save Hamburg. Well, it never made it. On the 9th of October 1799, it went down in a storm off the Dutch coast with the loss of all but one of the 239 people aboard and all the cash. Its bell was recovered many years later and until recently was rung at international insurers Lloyds of London if ever a ship they'd insured was missing. You see, Lloyds had insured the cash aboard the Lutine. Well, Lloyds refunded the British its million pounds in two weeks, about the equivalent of 100 million today. Hmm, these <laughs> we can't get insurers to pay a few hundred pounds without delaying for months and months.
1: But even the two weeks was too late to save the Hamburg market. 152 merchant houses collapsed, and they took the European sugar prices with them. Not long afterwards, the British blockaded Hamburg anyway as part of their economic warfare against Napoleon, who in a coup, exactly a month after the Lutine had sunk, had become de facto ruler of France. Anyway, the British blockade of Hamburg meant that the European sugar market was effectively closed to Britain's own West Indian planters. Their response
0: was to borrow more and to try to grow more sugar. They were caught in the gambler's trap like some rogue stockbroker, paying out more and more in the hope of recovering their losses. And what Drescher didn't factor into his theory of iconocide was that it was Jamaica, much the largest of the British Caribbean colonies, that dominated the West Indies sugar trade and also its political lobby in London. And it was above all the
1: Jamaican sugar economy that was in dire trouble. Ryden has shown, in fact, that Jamaican planters were facing, quotes, a catastrophic collapse. In 1807, the Jamaica Assembly reported that because of the collapse of the sugar price, 212 of the island's sugar plantations had gone, or were about to go, bankrupt. In fact, we now know, from research that Ryden's done over the last 10 or 15 years, that many of the island's merchants had given up the sugar trade altogether and were instead importing manufactured goods from Britain and selling them, in fact, illegally smuggling them, to Spanish Caribbean colonies. That's extraordinary.
0: Now, some of this Drescher didn't know, but he seems to have ignored all the rest of it. The other thing he didn't take into his calculations was that all the desperate Buying of enslaved people and the replanting of sugar and expensive shipping was only being paid for by borrowing. And as the situation got worse and worse, by 1807, the planters and their lenders back in Britain were facing a full blown banking and debt crisis. In 1799, the European sugar market collapsed. It wouldn't have bothered the British sugar planters in the past because they sold almost all their sugar to British consumers under rigidly protectionist laws. But in the 1790s, the British sugar planters had expanded their estates to compete in the European market. And now they had no way of paying the enormous debts they'd run up.
1: I suppose we all imagine merchants exchanging coins or notes on the quaysides and shipping firms being paid in cash when the sugar was sold over the quays in London. But in the years since Drescher wrote, we've become aware of the baffling complexity of credit in the 18th century. There was always a shortage of coins, so everything was done on credit. But there was no online banking and no banking telegraph. Throughout the British economy, there were extraordinarily complex and extended systems of credit to cope with this problem. But for the British West Indian sugar estates, caught up, you remember, in the extraordinarily long and complicated trades and voyages of the four-cornered so-called triangular trade, Britain,
0: Africa, the Caribbean,
1: North America, the system of credit was just mind-bogglingly complex. (sighs) At its simplest, slave traders had to be paid in credit notes that would then be claimable on London merchants or bankers when the sugar was eventually sold. Now, that means after it had been harvested and then consigned, as it was called, for shipping, often to the same merchants and bankers in ships they owned or paid for. You following all this? All of which might take two or even three years to complete. And all the time and all along the way, everybody at each stage of the chain was charging interest. Already way back in 1775, the whole
0: system had looked like collapsing. Historian Nicola Radburn showed that in that year, 1775, one Jamaican lawyer had proposed a solution. It's very significant. What he suggested was a seven year moratorium on purchasing any more enslaved people so that everyone could recover their finances call a halt to the planters' most ruinous financial outlay on enslaved people and give the planters and their lenders a chance to recover their debts and get things back on an even keel. Well, it didn't happen in 1775. And in
1: fact, the next year, the American war broke out and everything got much worse.
0: And so the cost of borrowing went on escalating. Jamaica suffered especially because, you remember from our second discussion, it was the last place the slave ships reached. Many never got there at all, and when they did, the prices they charged for enslaved people and goods were higher and the credit they needed was even more difficult to get.
1: Propping this whole elaborate network of credit up had become a serious problem by the 1780s. Three-quarters of the merchants in Liverpool, perhaps the chief slave-trading port, now quit. By 1790, Liverpool Town Council was injecting cash into the local shipping fleet which was still trading to the British West Indies in an effort to prop it up. Things improved in the 1790s when the rebellion on Saint-Domingue had temporarily opened up new European markets to British sugar. But the Jamaican planters in particular had blown their opportunity. They'd borrowed heavily. They were now in a spiral of high slave prices, expensive credit and rapidly diminishing returns. After the Hamburg crash, which Seymour Drescher barely mentions, the situation was reaching the point where the Jamaicans were simply running out of credit on which to trade. What we now
0: understand is that this whole extraordinary complex business had drawn in countless merchant and banking firms, especially in London. One reason the government had always kept the navigation laws going and protected the West Indian sugar merchants was because the trade was too big to collapse. It's a situation we now all recognise from the credit crisis of 2008 when the banks were sucked down by stupid subprime investments and mindless speculation. Governments had to bail them out before they destroyed the whole system of world banking. By the early 1800s, it was the British West Indian planters who had to be saved by the government before they dragged everyone else down with them. And there was an
1: obvious solution.
0: The one proposed by that Jamaican lawyer back in
1: 1775. Exactly. If the planters stopped borrowing money to buy newly enslaved people, their need for credit would be far less. What they needed to do was what planters on Barbados and Antigua, for example, had been working toward for years. Shift to a much lower cost system, in which more supplies were grown on the estates Enslaved were better treated, more enslaved babies were born and more survived. By the early years of the 19th century, it appears that most people involved in the sugar trade were convinced that they needed to shift to this more humane and lower cost, if still immoral, system. In 1797, the Grenaden and St Kitt's planters' Assemblies had agreed that what they chillingly called natural increase, more surviving healthy babies, was the answer. Among the older colonies, it was only the Jamaicans who were, as ever, blundering along in an increasingly reckless way, shelling out for more and more enslaved people, hoping, like the blind bankers of 2008, that something, probably the government, would turn up and save them.
0: So, in the end, the slave trade had to be halted. It wasn't because the British decided against their best economic interests that it was immoral. It was halted because the economics were heading for catastrophe. As the historian David BeckRyden has pointed out, the really striking thing is that when the trade was finally banned after decades of pro-slavery propaganda, there was a deafening silence from the West Indian planters. They made no complaint whatsoever. You have to conclude that they knew it was the only way. Okay. In 1807, it was obvious that the trade in newly enslaved people would have to be stopped. The West Indies planters, especially those in Jamaica, were dragging the whole extended network of credit in London and other towns down, with wild borrowing to buy newly enslaved people. The only question now was how to get the banning of the slave trade through
1: Parliament. Well, it certainly wasn't going to be done by a new wave of petitions against the slave trade by the abolitionists. The Society for Effecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade, which had been set up, you remember, in 1787, hadn't met since 1797. In 1804, after a couple of years of peace with France, Thomas Clarkson, the veteran campaigner from the 1780s, did begin to meet up again with his Quaker abolitionist friends. In 1806, they managed, very hastily, to drum up a modest petition for Manchester, fewer than 2,500 signatures but it was only in favour of banning the trade in newly enslaved people to non-British islands. Later in 1806 there was a general election and in a few seats the slavery question was apparently raised, but that was about it. In fact, Clarkson, Wilberforce and the others had finally come to the conclusion 20 years too late that mass meetings and petitions were counterproductive. Private talks behind the scenes was what got things done in the British Parliament. It was a lesson that Mrs Panker's suffragettes would have done well to learn a century later, as we see in our series on how women actually got the vote. It wasn't the suffragettes, but the ones who negotiated quietly behind the scenes who got it done.
0: Historian Stephen Farrell has shown that in 1806 and 1807, the abolitionists drew up long lists of their supporters and opponents in Parliament and methodically went down the list in alphabetical order and worked out how to approach each one and persuade them. One man they were not going to be able to win over was George Hibbert, because he was the leader of the West Indian planters. Ironically, on Sundays, in the Evangelical Church on Clapham Common, he sat across the aisle from William Wilberforce. Can you imagine the atmosphere? (laughs) Actually, Wilberforce was surprised at how easy it was turning out to be to get many of Hibbert's planters to vote for abolition. How popular abolition is just now, Wilberforce scribbled in his diary. Well, given the economic circumstances
1: as we've seen, that was no surprise at all. But much more important than this flickering back into life, slightly, of the abolitionist campaign was the Battle of Trafalgar. The Battle of Trafalgar? (laughs) One thing historians of the slave trade never seem to notice is the Battle of Trafalgar, which occurred late in 1805. It's like sitting in a cafe with your nose in a newspaper so that you don't notice what's going on around you. At Trafalgar, the British Navy under Nelson, do you remember we last met him with his fiancée on the island of St Kitts? Anyway, Nelson effectively put the combined French and Spanish navies out of action for years. Now that immediately transformed the situation in the Caribbean. For the first time, the British Navy completely controlled the Atlantic, It was, now actually practically possible for the British to halt the trade in enslaved peoples. It was also a waste of time for the assemblies on the British Caribbean islands to bluster on about going over to the French or the Americans or anyone else if they didn't get their way. The Royal Navy could now soon put a stop to any of that nonsense. The other result of Trafalgar was that it meant that it
0: was the war in Europe that now mattered. It was no longer, as in all Britain's previous wars for the last half century, the Americas or the Caribbean that mattered. In fact, historian Philip Morgan has argued that it was the war in Europe against Napoleon and the French, which went on until 1814 and then had a last gasp at Waterloo in 1815, that finally ended the importance of the West Indies to the British Empire. The West Indies planters slipped further down the government's list of priorities. Nobody was going to take much notice of them anymore.
1: But nothing would have happened while the Tory William Pitt was still Prime Minister. Pitt had watched while his friend Wilberforce had introduced anti-slavery motions in the commons year after year between 1791 and 1805. And year after year, Pitt stood by as they were defeated or pushed into the long grass with the promise of an inquiry. By the time Pitt died in January 1806, nothing concrete had been achieved. As Stephen Farrell has said, perhaps rather generously, Pitt was an abolitionist by conviction, uh, but a politician in practice. Once Pitt and the Tories were gone, it turned out to be surprisingly easy to get the slave trade banned. apparently didn't want to end enslavement enough to risk getting into a row with the West Indies planters and their supporters. Pitt and his Tory government had in fact been part of the problem. As usual, they'd been on the wrong side of history. By the time Pitt died in January 1806, nothing had been achieved at all. Pitt was
0: succeeded as Prime Minister by his cousin Lord Grenville, who was a Whig and led a hodgepodge of factions known rather facetiously as the Ministry of All the Talents. Grenville and his most famous minister, Foreign Secretary Charles James Fox, were both long-term abolitionists. Actually, not many of the talents were abolitionists, but on this issue, they could count in Parliament on Wilberforce and his Anglican Evangelical wing of the Tory party.
1: For a few months, there was a unique consensus When they introduced the measure, Grenville and Fox argued, not on moral terms, but on purely economic terms, that it was the right thing to do. Sensibly enough, they didn't try to do it all in one go. The first step was to prevent other nations bringing in any more enslaved people. Spanish Cuba, for example, and Portuguese Brazil were in the business of rapidly extending their sugar plantations and filling them with newly enslaved people. Preventing that might help the British West Indies because it would begin to halt the glut of sugar and perhaps bring the price back up a bit.
0: And they could only do that because they got the supremacy of the seas after After Trafalgar. So in May
1: 1806, Grenville brought in a bill and got it through Parliament with nothing but the usual groans and complaints from the West Indies planters.
0: Charles James Fox then followed up in June 1806 with a declaration that the trade in enslaved people was, quote, contrary to the principles of justice, humanity and sound policy. Both the Commons and the Lords passed the declaration with little debate and a lot of high-sounding rhetoric about what a noble thing banning the trade in enslaved peoples would be. Supporters of Seymour Drescher's econocide theory like to believe that these speeches in Parliament proved that in the end, abolition was a moral and not an economic decision. But of course, plenty of MPs wanted it to look like a piece of high moral politics. Why not? As Eric Williams pointed out 80 years ago, this kind of moral speechifying against the slave trade had been going on for years, and yet it had cut no ice at all. Now, however, it worked because it coincided with plain economic sense. It made all the more economic sense when, in November 1806, Napoleon announced that he was closing every port in his European empire to the British. Well, that meant British sugar was shut out from pretty much the whole of Europe. The sugar glut was going to get
1: even worse. So, in January 1807, the Prime Minister Grenville finally introduced a bill in the Lords to ban the slave trade altogether. Let's just look for a moment at the argument Grenville made in his speech he made it completely clear that this was an economic matter. It was a question of ending the planter's slide into uncontrollable debt as the sugar market collapsed. Quotes, If the planter has now to struggle with the difficulties resulting from a great diminution in the price of sugar, it's evident that these difficulties must be increased by furnishing him with a means of further reducing its price. But which Grenville means that the planters had to be prevented from trying to recoup their losses by purchasing yet more expensive slaves in the vain hope of producing enough sugar to pay their debts. The old gambler's illusion. Well, the Lords quickly agreed. What was there to disagree with? The economics were plain for all to see. The old pro-slavery opposition now melted away and Grenville's bill to ban the slave trade for the British, as well as everybody else, passed the Lords remarkably easily. When it came to the Commons, the veteran abolitionist Thomas Clarkson and his Quaker committee worked furiously behind the scenes, along with William Wilberforce, to make sure that every pro-abolition MP was there. At four in the morning on the 24th of February 1807, the Abolition Bill passed its first reading by a huge majority. Many of the former pro-slavery MPs abstained, but many of them, as historian Stephen Farrell has discovered, also voted for it. So did many merchants, clearly aware of the financial chaos the slave trade was causing. For most abolitionists, the ending of the trade was apparently enough.
0: Enslavement itself continued with all its horrific abuses. But most of the abolitionists now walked away. Wilberforce doesn't even mention abolition in his private journals for more than 10 years after this. He spent his time supporting the repressive Tory government
1: of Lord Liverpool. Which, you remember, backed the Manchester authorities when they unleashed soldiers on a peaceful crowd in 1819 at Peterloo. There's a good film about it. And then suspended habeas corpus and clamped down on all opposition. Many abolitionists
0: seemed to believe that without the trade in newly enslaved people, enslavement itself would gradually wither away, something they'd been always careful not to say in public.
1: Well, if that was their hope, they were wrong. It would take much more than that to end enslavement once and for all, as we shall see next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.
0: Or contact us on social media at Pod.